welcome to another edition of Zero Fucks Given. This is our second ever episode. And once again, it is not really sponsored by Smash and Grab Beer by, who makes that? Uh, Legal Draft. So this is an excellent IPA. And um, thanks to a lot of the controversy around activist short selling, it's now the only beer I drink. Uh, same, should be true for you too if you're actually watching this. Um, all right, so Freddie, here we are two weeks later. It's obviously been really quiet in the markets uh, the past two weeks, right? So do we have anything to talk about? No, nah, we don't. First thing I want to say, breathe that mouth the fuck away from me, okay? We're sitting around last week joking about like COVID. Mr. Here walks in today. He's got some news that he was in close proximity of someone with COVID. Yeah, sits there the rest of the time, just like, oh, hey, guys, don't worry. Everything's fine. I'm like, wait a minute the hypocrisy okay if i had like someone on my street who had covid he'd be like oh sorry man like can we can we get like something up your nostril and then if you could if you just bend over and we can get a swab up your backside as well and i know actually the tests are not that accurate so if you could just sit the fuck away from me but no you get covid proximity and it's just like yeah yeah i'll be fine don't worry i took one of these tests blasted at me well, so of course the test that I took was the one that was on your desk because we all knew that like a fucking, like the, you know, viral version of a sailor, you're the one who's most likely to get it. So, I mean, you probably have it and we're probably sitting right now, not just in what looks like a regular sauna, but let's call it a viral sauna. You're infecting my ass. But yeah, the good news is maybe I'm infecting you at the same time. So um, both end up in the hospital or some shit. Yeah. Anyway, sauna markets. We didn't really follow them this week. Nothing particularly interesting happened. It's just more death and destruction. But death and destruction. Low did, vol. Very low vol. Low vol. Death and destruction. Actually, to be fair to the guys at JPM, the uh, that strategist has been calling like by the dip since about the start of December. He was finally right. So that's pretty cool for him. Um, but it did get us thinking what might be next. There's this weird paradigm shift and... You know, we're kind of sitting there looking at Ukraine and Russia and how that might play out, how that might not play out, something which we have very little edge on. And we're like, okay, Taiwan, like, what might happen? And, you know, there's, I think there's kind of two ways of looking at it. And we, we kind of somewhat disagree. I think the, um, the sort of level one thinking, if you like, is, okay, she's looking at this and he's thinking, wow. This has gone really badly for Putin. This has gone really badly for all the oligarchs. This is going to be super painful domestically. And that's one way of thinking like, okay, he's not going to go anywhere near Taiwan. Now, my view on that is the longer this continues, and if maybe the guys underneath Putin are actually like a lot worse than him and more sycophantic and like despotic, the West says, hey, let's like keep the least bad guy in power. Um, he's going to have some resolution or just be bogged down in this for years, tail between his legs. But you know what? She then looks at that and he says, well, whatever this guy did, it's really not bad enough for the West to actually do anything beyond a little bit of like financial sanctioning and some other stuff. You know, this is a pretty good distraction from problems at home. And she has some major fucking problems at home. So maybe it kind of like comes back on itself where he actually ends up saying like, fuck it, I'm going to go and take Taiwan. Okay, so why I don't think that's the right model for him to use to look at it. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know how he thinks, but um, from what I understand, and as you said, not experts on Russia or Ukraine or their women, um, the Putin's power base is apparently peasants and lower middle class. So the way it was explained to me, it's like 30% of Russia kind of peasant class, maybe 20 some odd percent is lower middle class. So what's important there is that these, this group of people are not hit much by sanctions. They don't have much to begin with. It's not going to get much worse. People who are suffering middle class on up and, but that's not who Putin really depends upon. Now, if you look at China, this is different. And the conventional thinking on China or the conventional line has always been that, 
oh, what everybody's afraid of is a peasant uprising in China. Mm -hmm. I think that's bullshit. And when I was living in China you know, around 2006, 2007, I figured out that this is actually one of the big lies that the CCP tells everybody that we, what we need to be afraid of are the peasant hordes because that's who put us in power in the first place. There, were, there was a lot going on in that period of time, World War II. That's not what I think the CCP has been afraid of. The CCP has been afraid of the people it tells that lie to. So this is urban dwellers, middle class on up. They have some money. They have some understanding of the outside world. They're well-educated. They have an idea of how the levers of power work. More importantly, though, they have expectations for their lives improving. When you look at China's peasants, like literally, these are families that have been on the same plot of land for over 20 generations. And as long as you don't dispossess them of the land without compensation or ruin their land without compensation, they don't really care. They're going to be similar to Putin's power base. They're, they're just gonna, they're gonna be pretty placid. So what she fears are the people who would really be hurt by Western economic retaliation. So I think he has to look at it from a different perspective than Putin was looking at it. Fair enough. Unless, of course, he's taken like kind of a Gaddafi type move. So if Gaddafi had that like troop of female like Amazonian bodyguards, if I was she, I would take that troop of like monkeys that they had trained to like take all the birds' nests out. So they have this like I'm sure it's like the most elite troop in the Chinese army. I, I bet the rest of it's just dudes smoking cigarettes, staying out because they don't want to hang out with their wives. This troop are like they train these monkeys to like climb up trees, snatch out birds' nests, and like eat the eggs. So that when they did military parades, they didn't have bird strikes. Like you actually kind of wonder, like, were they so well trained that, like, you know, every so often they're stealing a cigarette from their mask and like, yeah, fuck it, it's your turn to climb up the tree. Like, I worked too hard last week. Yeah, they did that, I think, for the 60th anniversary of the liberation of China, uh, where they had that big military parade in Beijing. So they had to get the monkeys uh, to get the birds out of the nest so they don't shit on the ICBM as it's being <laughs> paraded through the, the streets of China or Beijing. Um but that also brings up another point that I think has got to be very sobering for Xi, and that is we don't know why Russia has fucked this up so badly militarily, but there are a couple of themes that are commonly discussed. Number one is Putin being surrounded by sycophants who are afraid mm -hmm. to give him bad news, such as maybe Ukrainians wouldn't want us to be there. Or I, uh, I actually feel the same. About? You know, like somewhat autocratic leaders being surrounded by sycophants. So you're a sycophant. You tell me what I want to hear. If you say so, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So that's, that's a problem that Putin obviously had where people weren't giving him accurate intelligence assessments and also in terms of Russia's military readiness and Ukraine's military strength. The former was way overstated, the latter understated. So if you're Xi and you've been executing your political opponents since 2012, sure. um, 10 years and counting, you do have to wonder, will I get good realistic intel on this, the readiness of our armed forces, Taiwan, et cetera? So that's one thing. The other thing that you have to look at that seems to have been a factor in Russia so far is that the military, to some extent, seems like it was hollowed out by corruption. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't think China's immune <laughs> to some official corruption and hollowing shit out and stealing money. So, um, yeah, you'd, you'd have to really wonder if all of these toys you think you have. And, and what's interesting when I think about that, when I was living in China and we had our office at one point in this district called Jabei, uh, we were in the flight path for they would fly Chinese MiGs or Sukhois uh, on training sorties. And there'd be two planes and they would do this maybe two times a week. And I remember thinking at the time, because it was so, when they did fly these sorties, I mean, you could hear it, you could feel it, but it was so rare relative to the amount of time that our pilots spend in the air. Um, and I just remember thinking like, that's, that shows you how expensive it is 
to really maintain the level of readiness that we in the U.S. have. Now, China's economy has obviously grown since 2009, since you know, 2010, but there's a big difference there. And I'm not sure that China really has, even if they have the strength they think they have, I'm not sure that they really have the strength to go head to head with a carrier strike group from the U.S., of course, there are people who say that their short-range ICBMs are accurate enough to sink carriers. Maybe so, but that's untested. And again, if things aren't as good as, if their hardware isn't as good as they think it is, eh, that's a real risk. So if you see there right now are a lot of question marks about moving on Taiwan that did not exist before Putin moved on Ukraine. That's true. Just going back to something you said, I, I love the idea of maybe she on his business card having executing uh, political opponents since 2003. Yeah, 2012, but okay. yeah. Um, yeah, I like the idea of that. That would really just, as he slides that over, that would set the tone. But I would like to have that on my business card. If we ever get business cards, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so anyway. And you know what? Like, look, just thinking about how fucked China is, one story did bring, like, a little bit of kind of kindred to my heart. It was a story that like Evergrande found like another $2 billion missing. I'm just wondering what those offshore creditors were thinking, buying bonds in the 50s and 40s and the 30s, because I think- They were thinking that my job is to buy Asian debt and I have to put money to work. So I'll buy these. That's true. But uh, yeah, and then like you see all these other- because, like, you know, it's not just Evergrande. Like, yeah, maybe they've got caught first, and then everyone else is like, oh, it's, yeah. It's we the Chinese to... military, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that did bring uh, a little smile to my face this week. Absolutely. Well, speaking of our favorite Chinese stories, um, that reminds me of we wanted to talk about short selling, right, and, yes. and just how much it, it sucks, and that also brings or can suck. And so that no, brings up sucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. I'll pull up a chart of like any sort of like major stock index over the last 15, 20 years, basically like my career twice over, and it sucks. Yeah, exactly. Um, but wanted to talk about um, why it sucks with getting sued in anti slaps. And that segues back into, I mean, fuck, this was an awkward transition. But that segues, I'm looking at the board over there where we wrote the things that we're going to talk about, which okay. we didn't do for. The first episode, right. right? So we're really stepping up our game here by having a whiteboard with a dry erase marker that we've outlined some things on. So yeah. the good awkward. thing is the audience are now seeing who's a natural and who's not all these years. You've just been faking it for TV. I know you're reading off a teleprompter when you're on Bloomberg. God, I wish, man. That would make <laughs> shit so much easier. Well, to be fair, it's why should anybody listen to you? You're short the stock. True. So followed by, what do you think of oil? No, crypto. 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 Yeah, that's been the past few years. True. So do you follow Bitcoin or crypto at all? No. Um, but anyway, with awkward transition out of the way, um, we wanted to talk about getting sued, anti-slap, how that doesn't actually work. So. Yeah, so for me, I thought it'd be interesting. People always ask me, oh, how can you guys get sued and blah, blah, blah. And there's this like big mystery around it. And then even when you are a short seller, like it kind of takes a while where you get your cherry popped and you get sued. And so then it's like- Hopefully it does. If, yeah. if it happens the first time, it's you're probably you out of business yeah, forever. Probably out of business, true. But, um, you know, and then there's this kind of like painfully expensive learning process. And so I thought it'd be kind of What have we learned from it? It's been expensive, <laughs> yeah, but what the fuck true. have we learned? There's no learning process. I guess you could do one of these like cheap online courses like you sued or you know you could have your like face on one of those big placards like when you go to the shitty parts of the u.s which no offense is most of it in the middle um you know you see you're in the middle right now you're in texas like it's pretty much right. dead middle but i'm getting an icbm no one's gonna is that working out baby steps baby steps are you Turns gonna out, let are you gonna let bird shit on it i'm not gonna let bird shit on it we're gonna get there okay that'll be featured in the later episode Potentially, we'll be filming with my ICBM in the background. Anyways. Are you going to paint, like, British flags on it and stuff? Good question. You know, I... if you did that and you fired it at North Korea, then maybe they would shoot England 
Yeah. Fuck it, fire it at the north of England. It's about the same amount of economic damage you do. <laughs> well, didn't Trump suggest bombing you or bombing Russia, but painting Chinese flags on the plane? So maybe that's the solution, right? Like. Get your old ICM Fire fired up you know, with they, like they a Chinese notice, flag on they it. They won't notice which way it's coming from. He's like, hey, if you fire it that way, they'll think it's gone round and it's coming from North Korea. I can see really that do wonder whether North Korea has the radar air defense systems to figure out where the ICBM comes from. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I don't know if it was true, there was a hurricane that was going to hit the U.S., and it was going to be like a really bad storm. And apparently um, he was in the meeting. He's like, because, you know, they have like that cloud seeding thing where they like launch some sort of like explosives and it like helps. It, it's some sort of like agricultural thing, which I'm clearly butchering. But um, apparently this, he just went and he was in the room. He being. Uh, so Trump, when uh, someone was like talking about the storm, about being, you know, out in the Atlantic and how it was going to come over and hit. And he was like, can we nuke that? And, Apparently, someone's like, we'll look into that piece. So. Well, you're well informed. That is actually a fact. Like, that's well known. Oh, it's well known? Yeah. And then he well, also it's said that it's going to hit um, Alabama. And, oh, and then, yeah. he, and then he was, oh, because that's a big voter base. Yeah. Regardless of what you think of Trump, he clearly was not good meteorologist. <laughs> Fair. Um, so, back to getting sued. Like, I want to talk about it. What happens? Like, you know, sitting there, short pull goes out. If you do a good job, company gets pissed off. They come and sue you. Like, how does that even work? Where do they sue you? Who sues you? What do you do? Okay. So when I lost my virginity mm -hmm. on that, it was ironic. Most of them have been ironic in some way. It was Sino Force. So I was sitting there about nine months after we had issued the report on Sinoforce. The stock had been halted. Auditor had resigned. The Ontario Securities Commission had already announced some findings of fraud, I believe. And then it hit the tape that Sinoforce had filed for bankruptcy. And I'm like, yeah, all right, man. Like this is this shows these guys. There was nothing there. But then I got an email from my cousin who was portfolio manager and he said, man, sorry to hear about the lawsuit. Fuck you talking about. So he then sent me an article and contemporaneous with Sinoforce's bankruptcy petition in bankruptcy court in Ontario, it filed a lawsuit against Muddy Waters and me. $4.3 billion. Now, I like that number because... I feel like in a room of people who've been sued, I definitely have the biggest I've been sued dick just by version of $4.3 billion uh, contingent liability. Shame that's the only room you have that in, but it's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, in this room right now with you and Krista, I'm pretty confident I've got the biggest <laughs> dick as small as, you know, small as it might be. But um, anyway, so that was, yeah, I mean, that hit me pretty hard, especially because it had been so long and so many things adverse to the company and validating of our thesis had transpired that I just wasn't expecting it. So when we published initially on Sinoforce, it wouldn't have surprised me if we got sued. And that was a situation in which, um, so this was the lawsuit up in Canada and I got representation in Canada. I had a lawyer here who was also okay. billing me. Um, simple question. How do you know who to go to? Like, you know, you've never been sued. Like, what do you do? Like, just look for, like, who's the most expensive lawyer? Like, how do you know if it's, like, a litigator you go to or, like, just a regular corporate dude? Like, how do you even get into that? Well, so I had already had corporate uh, okay. lawyer there because I had given testimony on the record to the mm -hmm. Ontario Securities Commission, reached out probably two weeks after we issued our report. Mm -hmm. So I asked them, and I learned that the dean of one of the deans of the Ontario bar, but somebody who focused on media law uh, was this, they, they pointed me toward this one attorney and I went and met with him. He's an older guy and he's got some autographed hockey jersey in his office. And so when I was talking with him, I just assumed that he would view free speech the way that American media defense attorneys do as well. So I'm bitching about 
how there's no First Amendment in Canada. And this guy took me by surprise when he said, you know what, that's the thing with you Americans. You have this concept of free speech, but all you do is fucking yell at each other. It's fucking terrible. So here is a guy who's actually kind of a speech lawyer criticizing the American view of free speech. And at that time, I vehemently disagreed with him. I don't think we should narrow the First Amendment, but clearly mm -hmm. in the ensuing 11 years, we see that there are a lot of problems now in our society related to the breadth of our speech protections. But um, he was an, so he was an older guy and he said, I'm happy to advise behind the scenes. You should go and get somebody else to actually handle the, okay. the ins and outs. And um, the lawyer I hired was, I mean, he was a good lawyer, but there was also this, I guess I got really fucking tired of this because so many of the things I was told were, well, you don't want to, you don't want to aggravate the judge. So Sinoforce never actually sued me. They had a process server who lied about suing me and swore an affidavit that he'd sued me, even though he, or that he'd served me, even though he hadn't. Huh. And so that was the first thing. I'm like, well, let's try to, let's try to, you know, let's move to quash service here because it didn't actually happen. And my lawyer said, well, you know, but then the judge will ask if we'll accept service on your behalf. And I'm like, no, you know, this is what I've learned in law school about U.S. law. They have to actually serve so you. So service is like in the movies. It's not like just the thing. I mean, like, you know, these guys chase you around and like throw a suit at you. Well, he didn't chase me around. He okay. just swore an affidavit that he'd served me. So when I lived in Chicago, we had a landlord who kept our deposit uh, illegally and deposits a bunch of his other uh, tenants. And so we ended up finding a scumbag lawyer who claimed to have, who found a process server who claimed to have served the guy, even though he was in um, mm -hmm. Poland. And so eventually the, we got a default judgment at treble damages. And so all of a sudden the guy materialized and, to defend himself. But anyway, Canadian attorneys, like, nah, you know, you didn't, you know, you don't want to, you will accept service then because you don't want to anger the judge. And I heard this so often from Canadian attorneys, whether it's him or somebody else who, you know, other attorneys who were involved, that I just started calling them my Canadian pussies because it was okay. all about don't make the judge angry where I'm like, this company is fucking bankrupt. It's a fraud. The Ontario Securities Commission has determined it's a fraud. The auditor resigned. Why in the motherfuck do I still have to put up with this charade? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was the first time I got sued. Second time was Olam, and I'm not going to go through every single one, but this one was kind of funny in a way because I'd given a talk in in UK. I was at Sewn London, and we were going to. So this is pretty funny. We decided that we should retain a Singapore-based PR firm to because Olam was based in Singapore and listed in Singapore, a Singapore-based PR firm to help amplify the the report. And we contacted a small PR firm, right? And so we spoke to the CEO of this PR firm. And first thing you ask is, do you have any conflicts with Olam? No, 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 no conflict. Okay. So we, we said, okay, we're going to be issuing a report. I'm going to speak on this at Sewn, um, blah, blah, blah. So he, the guy in Singapore was then talking to our New York PR firm. We didn't really know what the thesis on Olam was. And Olam's a real business. We were never of the view that it wasn't a real business. But the, the guy in Singapore asked our New York PR guy, so what's the short thesis? And New York PR guy didn't really know. He's like, oh, the thing's a total fraud, this and that, you know. So anyway, a few hours after that, just before I go on stage at Sone, I get an email from that PR firm in Singapore. Don't send us the draft. We have a conflict. Oh, fuck. Like, now I know these dudes have run to Olam. So I go, I present at Sone. It's not broadcast on TV. It's not available online. But immediately afterward, Olam issues a press release saying that they're suing me. So I know right, that this PR firm, which then became Olam's PR firm a few months later, mm -hmm. conveniently sold us out. So we're sued. We decide to hold the draft. Sorry, they said they were going to sue. So we decide to hold the, hold the report get everything super tight because it's Singapore and there's like very little room for error. So I'm on the flight back to San Francisco from London and there's the press release or sorry, there's the actual press release like saying that they filed suit. So I land and I'm like sprinting through the terminal, like, cause I feel like there's something I got to do. My adrenaline's pumping, you know, I got to jump on this. And 
The reality of being sued is that the stuff moves very slowly. Mm -hmm. And as I ran past people, somebody was saying, run, Forrest, run, to fuck with me. And I'm like, <laughs> thinking, like, I'm getting sued, dickhead. But he was right. Like, there was no reason to be running. It was definitely an overly dramatic reaction. But um, after that happened, a funny story then. I sat down with Andrew Left like, one or two days mm -hmm. later. And he, we, had, we had lunch in L.A. And yeah, he asked how it's going. I'm like, ah, fucking sued by goddamn Olam and you know, it's bullshit. And so he goes, you want to know how much money I've made as a defendant over the years? Huh? Huh? Like how much? Four million. How the fuck do you make that money? Well, they inevitably, they sue me. Guy calls me a manipulator, which is accusing me of a crime. I counter sue. They realize I'm going to fuck them up in discovery. They come to me and say, eh, we're going to drop the suit. And I say, yeah, you can drop the suit, but I'm not dropping mine. And then they're like, oh, what can we pay you to make it go away? So that was Andrew's whole approach. Um, I think he's, I think he enjoys litigation. I don't, I'm not afraid of it, but it's obviously there are better things to do with the time and with the money. But anyway, so those are the first two lawsuits. Interesting. Yeah, it's like, like I said, it's this somewhat like you know exciting ish from the outside thing and and yeah the the pace is slow that is the reality of the whole thing and it's really not very glamorous or exciting at all right well then i've been sued in the u.s a few times or we have and in california got it dismissed under the anti-slap statute and so the way those work the anti-slap statute works is a slap slap SLAPP -P stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that little guy, little activist goes out, criticizes. Sorry, just to be clear, not talking about little. I'm actually quite tall, as you can see. Yeah, you know, yeah. just very yeah. force of nature. Yes. Um, goes out, criticizes McDonald's, and McDonald's sues them just because they want to make them bleed for having mm -hmm. done that. And which that's actually happened, I know, in the UK. But anyway, the idea with the SLAP statute is that you get to file a motion to dismiss under the SLAP statute. And if you prevail on the motion to dismiss, then you as the defendant are supposed to be awarded, um, you're supposed to be awarded your legal fees and reasonable expenses um, for, for that. But it turns out that even in California, which has the broadest anti-SLAP in the nation, it just doesn't work well. Hmm. So we were sued by Zhong Wang, well, their you know, un undisclosed related party, Perfectus, sued in California state court. We were in California at the time, so we couldn't get it into federal court because we're both in the same state. It was in Riverside County, and probably the judge's docket largely consisted of like wife beaters and you know meth cookers so it's like wow you know multi-billion dollar international trade fraud dispute like this is awesome hey that's not fair successful meth cookers they could be pulling in real money not china fraud money though i mean come on this this is like five billion dollars that was looted from chinese banks and stuff like that on on one yeah. end so anyway we get hit with the with the lawsuit um and they came up with this theory total bullshit well, we had published that, though, yeah. under a pseudonym, Dupre Analytics. True. And the reason we published it under a pseudonym was because we just felt these guys were like super dangerous dudes. And that was after we had an investigator go and check out one of their properties, saw some shit that they really yeah. thought was dangerous. And they were wearing one of those uh, camera watches. Right. And so they saw bad shit. They were about to go through a metal detector, and um, they realized, like, this is just a bad idea with the mm -hmm. with the watch. So I was told by the investigator firm that guy asked to go to the bathroom, took the watch off. Supposedly, like, literally, this is a guy who'd been in prison before. Mm -hmm. Took the watch off and stuck it up his ass in order to get through the metal detector. The, you know, the, the question for me is, how big was the watch? I've seen those things online. They're not. Oh, I thought you were about to say I've seen the video. Like, no, I, I asked for. Sick fuck. I asked for the video because I thought this would be amusing. Yeah. I thought maybe it'd be like a good photo to use in the uh, report. Like yeah. these guys are so bad that you know here's the asshole coming into view. Um, so so anyway, um, that's why we wrote it under the pseudonym of Dupre Analytics. Mm -hmm. And why Dupre? Well, 
I remember that we were sitting around trying to think of a good name yeah. and this was 2015. We weren't yet managing outside capital. Not that that really would have changed things, yeah. but the initial, if you remember, yeah. the initial idea was to go with Spitzer Swallow, yeah. which, you know, sounds very nice and British and probably would have taken the Chinese guys like a little while to figure out what that, right. you know, what that pun is. But then we thought, okay, we want to be taken more seriously. So you then asked, what was the name of Elliot Spitzer's hooker? Right. And it was Ashley Dupre. Ashley Dupre. Like, oh, that doesn't even sound Anglo-American. Yeah. So let's go with Dupre Analytics. So we published it under Dupre Analytics. Two years to the day after, our, I think, our second report, uh, the California entity filed suit against Dupre Analytics. And I think Alcoa and it's asserted that it was this big conspiracy driven by Alcoa. So it took over four years and about $600,000 mm -hmm. to get rid of that under the California anti-slap statute. So we went up, the trial court didn't, uh, did not grant dismissal. Mm -hmm. We appealed that to the appellate court. The appellate court reversed it. Then they appealed it to the California Supreme Court, which denied cert, didn't hear it. So the reversal stuck. But then we had to go back to the trial court and prove up the legal fees. So it was really about $600,000 in legal over the four years. And the trial court said, well, we're not good. 50,000 of this seems to fall outside the rubric of the statute. So we're only going to give you 550,000, which is like total bullshit, right? This is a slap suit. Right. This is what the law, this is what the law is designed to protect mm -hmm. against. But for the bullshit lawsuit, we don't spend $600,000. However, you're saying some of this is not within the statute. So now I'm a judgment creditor of, of this entity for $550,000. Yeah, but the problem is you sit behind some other guys, right? Right. For so the DOJ, number. our friends at the DOJ last year got a big verdict based on that report. And in their initial criminal complaint against Perfectus, Zhong Wang, the Liu family, and other entities that they control, they asserted that this investigation began with the Dupre Muddy Waters report. And so they got a $1.8 billion verdict in their favor last year. So that's who my $550,000 sits behind is the DOJ's $1.8 billion. Yeah, I ain't getting that. But the DOJ showed up in October to thank us. True. Not really. Oh, at least we could have get the watch. We couldn't get the watch. Oh, fuck. I mean, I, you, I wanted the footage. I didn't want the watch. Uh, speaking of watches, whatever happens, your uh, attempt to get those those FIFA corrupt uh, watches. Oh yeah, that? that was weird. So yeah, the um, the the watches that had been returned by the people who got them as gifts and didn't want to admit that they had, you know, that they knew that these were yeah. bribes. Um, they were given to some charity, some children's soccer charity in Germany, and those guys were such a shit show. I they kept calling them. them, right? Well, I'm like, hey, I want to buy one. Like, oh, we might auction them. You know, kept calling them. Oh, you know, we're gonna, we're working on it. And then, I don't know. After some period of time, like the specialness passed, and mm -hmm. I'd seen too much other corruption in the world. And then they contacted me. Hey, you want to buy a watch? Nah, not at this point. But yeah, they were the Parmigiani or yeah, Parmesan something or like like something some, like that. Something you looked at and you just knew that, like, yeah, someone spent like a lot of for no particular reason it's not even i can't look at a watch and tell that but the funny thing is i think hardly anybody in you know, lay people or non-watch people which among you know i'm one of the non-watch people in the world nobody had heard of this company like parmigiani right. or anyway after the fifa scandal broke they began running pretty large ads in color <laughs> in the ft and i think they still do it like regularly run mm. ads in the ft and that like only that. happened i think after the FIFA watch scandal. So it's been great for Parmesan. So if you're a budding watch brand out there and you're really looking to get out of that, what you want to do is get caught up in a huge fucking corruption scandal and then run ads in the FT. I mean, well, doesn't that work for pretty much every business? Running ads in the FT or getting, no, caught, getting in caught in a big corruption scandal as long as it's not you who's like doing the corrupt shit. Sure. You know, it's like if everybody thought that you were so special that your service or product should be the bribe offered. Like, what could be better advertising in this world than that? The best advertising in the world 
is Robert Friedland wanting to sell you, okay? Like genuinely, I went to this meeting um, for Muddy Waters. I work for a fund in Hong Kong. And this guy is the best fucking salesman in the history of Earth ever. So um, there was there was a- We're like, way off whiteboard now, but that's okay. Yeah, free balling. If this is great, give us a thumbs up. If not, stick to the whiteboard. Um, so I, I went to this like lunch that was set up in the Hong Kong club, which is this like, uh, maybe it was the American club. It was like fancy schmancy place. It's like the only place where I like, kind of like the lunches. Like it wasn't like the shitty rubber chicken or something that looked like it had died of old age. And, uh, <laughs> sauce. Um, so we're all sitting down around the table and, um, you know, Robert's like running a couple minutes late. I think Stan Chartered set the lunch up. I'm there like definitely to fill seats. And um, he, he walks in and he's like, yeah, a couple minutes late. And he's got you know, like decent head of hair for a guy of his age. Not Died. like, ah, uh, he's kind of blondish. You we've, know? we've talked about this and older guys dying their hair. So, you know, that's, that's a real good question. Robert, if you're watching this or if you're not watching this and anyone else is like, Please let us know if Robert Friedland dyes his hair. But that was back in, like, what, 2010, 2011? Yeah, it would have been around 11. Okay. Okay. We want to know if he's dying it now. We want to know if he was dying it then. So he walks in. He's got, like, slightly longer hair for an old guy. And um, he's like, oh, hey, guys, sorry. I was, like, you know, jet's late landing, whatever. About two seconds. Didn't he complain about, like, getting a landing slot for the jet? Yeah, it's something like that. It's, like, one of these, like, hey, you know, kind of problems i've got over here and uh like in behind him walks the biggest smoke show like of a personal assistant ever i'm talking like like bond villain chick hot like looks like she 100 went to oxford but that's because modeling wasn't enough of a challenge so she did both at the same time like total smoke show and it was awesome he uh he he like starts the whole lunch by like he knows who's in the room. So he's like, oh, you know, like, oh, third point, yeah, I got money with you, like, good returns last year. And, oh, DE short, yeah, say hi to David, and blah, 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 blah. He's just going around the table, basically, being like, I know all your fucking bosses, all right, minions? I know all your fucking bosses by first name. And I'm a big investor in your funds. Who knows if that was true or not? Maybe he invested in one of the funds, but wanted everyone to feel shitty. Right, not like these guys would know. Exactly. So he gets him. He's like, okay, anyway, guys, I didn't even really want to be here. Um, you know, oh, like uh, Stan Chart, like organizing this, dragging me away from, you know, the good work I do. So he's, he's like, look, you don't even need to invest in what I'm doing to make money. Okay. Just learn this platinum, um, supply is going like this. Demand is going like this catalytic converters. There's one mine in South Africa that produces like most of the platinum in the world. Yada, 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 yada. And it's like, someone's about to put the honey. So then he kind of like tells you, look, for platinum, it's all about like big, thick cuts. He goes, the mine in South Africa, he goes, I have been down there. He goes, are my brothers? And I'm like, you? My brothers are down there and it's, it's like 100 degrees and it's like 150% humidity. And, and when I'm in the penthouse in raffles, in Singapore, and I sit in that for five minutes. I can barely breathe. And my brothers are down there. And I'm like, dude. Didn't he like go a... under the table? Is yeah, he goes, like, he's like under the table. And he's like, and the cuts are like this and whatever. And I'm like, aren't you the same fucking guy who was in bed with like the military junta in Burma? Isn't your nickname Toxic Bob because you're poisoning rivers? And, 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 he, and you're just like feeling it like, you know, the great humanitarian Robert Friedland who's found this thing in the Congo just to liberate the people of South Africa from their shitty life in his down a mine. So he's like getting all worked up. And then comes the watch sign bit. And he's like, anyway, look, you don't even have to listen to me. You can just buy physical platinum and you make tons of money. He goes, I happen to have a platinum watch. And he, he sort of takes this watch off and, it's, and he like passes it around and it's, heavy as fuck and you can see like the backs exposed and there's a bazillion gizmos in parmigiani there. it's it's like one of these watches where everyone's like oh that's like probably really expensive and as everyone's passed it around he's like flicking through slides as fast as he humanly possibly can so no one can actually 
fucking read anything. And he's like, anyway, guys, so uh, look, this has been great. He's like, whiz through all the slides. Um, I'm going to be at this event, this event, this event, this event. Like, I am going to be speaking to retail. You know, stock's not that liquid, but uh, he can help you if you want some. And before anyone can ask a question, bolts out the door, and you're all left just being like, and it's it's almost like the you know like the papers like move and it's like a frizz of like excitement and you're like god that sounded good i don't think i can fucking learn anything but oh. it's just total force of nature so you know selling minds it so turns you. out thank you thank you very much it it turns out that selling minds is a better business than um selling watches but uh well i started reading that mining textbook the other day and i text like page five it literally <laughs> says that even before a mine is developed the excitement around it can create significant appreciation of the stock price um and sell them have truer words been written than that actually but, that's that's very true and i, I read a, an excellent book if you're interested in mining and learning about robert friedman it's called the big score it's all about um boise's bay where he had a nickel project it's it's actually a fantastic book both about negotiation hustling and promotion and i gotta hand it to this guy like he's got like you know two of the world's biggest companies fighting over the asset he's w working them off one against each other everyone's thinking like you know that he regardless of the outcome he's going to walk away with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and he's still able to like hold his nerve continue to play these guys off and walk away with like probably closer to a billion dollars like there's serious skill there he's nobody's mug yeah it's funny because that some of that reminds me of Ike Batista. Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of Ike 2011. I was invited to go down to Brazil for this conference being held by the exchange, the BMNF and uh, Bovespa. And before I went down there, one of my friends said, you really need to look into Ike Batista and see what's going on. Like, he tells me about the X group. So my buddy had been at the Milken conference a few months earlier, and I guess Ike spoke there. And so Ike gets up apparently and he's like, you know, you Americans, you're so smart because when you come to Brazil, you invest with the best, you invest with me. And that makes you so smart. Brazilians are so small minded. Like all these guys in there are like, you know, jerking themselves off as they hear this and what have you. So anyway, I go down to Brazil. I'm at this conference and he's a keynote speaker before he speaks. I'm talking to people and I'm asking them, like, what do you, Brazilians, what do you think of Ike Batista? And they're like, oh, well, the joke here is that nobody's made more money off PowerPoint than Ike Batista except for Bill Gates. <laughs> and then uh, I asked, well, who invests with this guy? And, okay, well, these guys would never invest with us, so I'm going to say it. Like, oh, you know, Canadian pensions, like Ontario teachers. And then... Brazilians would always throw this in a second later with impeccable timing. Ontario means stupid in Portuguese. <laughs> like, wow, okay. So then I'm thinking this guy must be like the world's best hustler. So he gives his keynote and it's in Portuguese, but I've got the simultaneous translation headphones, like I'm some dude at the UN or something. And it's so funny because he's showing these slides and probably over 50% of the stuff on the slides it's computer graphics, like it doesn't exist. And everything is, it's about like size. He's like, this boat, when, it will, when it's finished, it will be the largest ship in the world. It's time Brazil had an empress of the seas. I'm thinking to myself, like, isn't that a Royal Caribbean ship or something? And this gas project, it will be the biggest in the world and Brazil will have the biggest. And so it's all like trying to get everybody like bulled up about like how many inches their dicks will be because they're Brazilian at the end of this. And I was juxtaposing that in my mind with what he told all the Americans about how smart they are for investing with him. So anyway, when he finishes, and as I said, based on my sampling beforehand, most of the Brazilians knew this dude is full of shit. Mm -hmm. So he finishes and then any, oh, the other thing that was really funny is he kept talking about Carlos Slim because Carlos Slim, I guess, was number one on the Forbes list at that point. And Ike was climbing the list, kept saying shit like, 
Carlos Slim better check his rearview mirror because I'm about to pass him. Just really weird pathological shit there. Mm -hmm. So when he finished, first question stood up. Ike called him. Like these were obviously planted questions. Ike, can you tell us about the spirit of the new Brazilian entrepreneur? (laughs) So he proceeds to answer that question in a way that makes it sound like he's the greatest entrepreneur who's ever existed in the history of the world. By the way, his father was minister of mines, and that's how he got all these oh, know, I didn't know that. shit to be all this shit to begin with. And his son killed somebody with Ike's like five hundred thousand dollar Mercedes. His and son's also called Thor. Thor. Yeah, like, and he's who the fuck but dude's so ripped. He's, Thor. he's an obvious juicer, right? Okay. Right, Thor, obvious fucking juicer, and yeah, killed some dude with a Mercedes. Pretty much got away with it too, because um, his father was Ike Batista, and it was before his whole empire went tits mm. up. So then the next question is. Ike, if you were president of the Republic, what would you do? Well, let me tell you. Then the final, Ike, I am from a family office, and I just want to say thank you because we have made so much money with you. So I came out of this, and I'm like, oh, my God. The X group, the combined market cap, well, they weren't all public. They had public debt. It's like $20 with the public companies, I think, was the combined EV. Who would buy this shit? And so I remember talking to some people in New York who had been short X Group or some of the X Group companies. And they're like, look, this is what happens. Okay. You have these funds in New York, in Canada. The analysts go down on a Thursday. Ike helicopters them all over the country, gets them laid by former models. Like his wife had been previously like in Playboy or something and was number two prostitute in all of Brazil at one time. I think like literally she had been like a prostitute. Yeah, like I'm not judging, you know, but like whatever. Whatever, whatever, you know, number She's two still prostitute and all number two at something. So she had friends who were like numbers 10 through 20, right? And right. so apparently those women are partying with the guys who come in from New York and Toronto, just have the best time all weekend, fly back to New York Monday morning. Oh, this guy's special. We got to load up on this. And it worked. I mean, it really worked until. And I was thinking, this is before you joined, I was thinking that we would do we would do a short of X mm-hmm. Group as kind of a signature project. So this was into 2012. And I thought we had time. And they took money from, I think it was the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth right. Fund. I should have known like that was that was the harbinger of the end. I'm like, ah, we've got time. No, we didn't. It collapsed like months after they took that Middle Eastern Sovereign Wealth Fund money. Another group of people who will never give us money, but you know what? Yeah, we want to take it. I made so many like rips on Saudi Arabia publicly. You know, 15 of the 19 hijackers mm-hmm. came from there. Fuck those guys. Fuck Mohammed bin Salman for the record. So we don't want the money. Speaking of the Middle Eastern money, I, I actually want to applaud. I think it's the QIA um, for uh, the return on the Glencore investment. Um, I think the, I want to say, including divs reinvested. If you, if you X out divs, I think they're, flat on the stock since IPO. If you include the divs and you assume some participation in the rights, I think they've kegged at about one and a half to 2%. Um, but just before, right? I mean, Glencore got they stuffed, stuffed them, them, right? They stuffed, stuffed them, them real good. That's right. So uh, you know, it turns out the QIA also in like, what, 20 odd percent of Rosneft? Rosneft, yeah. Yeah, yeah they so. stuffed him. Yeah, Glencore sold them their Rosneft stake, I think, in 2019. Yeah. And I believe they were holding it until, or they're still yeah, holding it. I think it, they're so. still holding it. Yeah. It's, it's funny. How do you sell these guys? You just show up and they're like, oh, same thing that Ike Batista was saying. You're so smart. I think that's what Goldman did with the Libyans, right? When that they absolutely awesome. raped the Libyans was, under Gaddafi. That was awesome. I mean, you know that, like, a bank getting sued by a client, like generally they'd rather settle on the side and keep it quiet, especially one with such a prestigious reputation as those guys over at Goldman Sachs. They would never. They would never. never. Um, but it, it turns out they obviously made so much money that they were like, nah, we'll litigate this. Like, we don't want to give a cent back. I, I want to say like the losses on all the derivatives were 95 cents on the dollar, 97 That's cents awesome. on the dollar, and it, it kind of turns out in the court filings that they were like, yeah, we were preyed upon. I mean, they had these guys into intern and then there was like one guy at the bank whose entire bonus job 
reason for like existing at the bank was to make sure that it applied with alcohol and women in order to make sure any trade done was with them, which turns out he did a pretty good job of. So credit, credit to you. And I think people need to understand that no matter how much wokeism has caught on, no matter how much we're in the Me Too era, a shockingly large percentage of investment decisions, real money is made based on alcohol and women. Who gave it, who furnished it, yeah. et cetera. That's true. It's, it's very true. But speaking of Goldman Bankers, I love this trial of Roger Ng, the former Goldman Banker, who was Tim Lesnar's uh, supervisor, Tim Lesnar, the Goldman Banker, who brought in 1MDB. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of funny because Goldman made like, 600, 700 million in fees on 1MDB doing you know, like six point yep. something billion in bond sales. So, average, you know, that's, I think that's pretty traditional for raising for a sovereign to, to make yeah, like 10%. 10 points. Yeah. Sure, why not? So, great part is Joe Lowe apparently made, I think, about one and a half billion that went right into his bank account. Prime Minister of Malaysia made a fraction of that. He only made 500 million. Piker. Yeah, total piker. Like, Joe Lowe played that motherfucker. And that dude's in prison, the former Prime Minister of Malaysia. He's running. Najib? Yeah, I thought he was... Uh... From prison? He went to prison. I, I think he's still in prison. Joe Lowe is... On the line. He's in the paradise of China. Okay, yeah, he's in prison. He's in prison. But, uh, but with $1.5 billion. And looking at Lesnar, and I think his bonus that year was like maybe $10 million. But yeah, he pocketed, I think, based on the trial, he pocketed like 35 for himself. And Ng pocketed or he's on trial for having pocketed like roughly 30, 35 million of his own. So yeah, you know, it's, this is what happens post-financial crisis when you limit bankers' bonuses. They have to do stuff like this. It is an interesting phenomenon, like people who climb to the top of the tree and something that was- Lesnar wasn't at the top of the tree. He was- He's he was pretty close, right? He was in fucking Asia. He's in a backwater. He was nothing. He was in Malaysia, I think, or Singapore, right? He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't he, he shit. Was, he was close enough, I think. He, he was one he of those guys movie. Goldman wished they'd never hired before this all happened. Right, and then they were like, oh, "This is signature transaction. We should be doing more of this." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which actually makes me think, you know, how like all these really prestigious guys, like, oh yeah, our investors are like sovereigns and whatever. We should be approaching like the smallest sovereigns on the planet. Well, right. Um, well, we've just insulted the Middle Eastern sovereign sovereigns. All so. of them. Yeah, I mean, True. Saudi, Qatar, fuck you, whatever. Yeah. Israel don't have a sovereign wealth fund. Too smart. Mm, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. The world is Israeli's sovereign wealth fund. This is true. This is true. Um, but, yeah, what, what about, like, you know, approaching the, like, you know, tiny weeny little micronations? Have you ever, like, you ever see the thing about, like, the micronation Olympics? Like, all these people, like, there's a dude who has an oil platform that he's like turned into his own little place. And when I, I lived in Israel briefly. I think it's year. kind of disputed as to whether that's actually a country, by the way. But I think he's able to issue his own currency, which is pretty dope. Until like pre-crypto, that was pretty dope. If you could have your own currency. Dude, that's like L. Ron Hubbard with Sea Org. Like it's not, it's not really uh, a country. Do you sit atop an organization that is successful with Scientology? <laughs> just saying sorry yeah just you're saying. right man like not as wealthy as l ron you know not as wealthy fair, as l ron fair point and you know from what i've noticed that your organization like because ultimately we know how it always goes with cults right at the end of it the leader always has to have sex with everyone else's wife i don't know why that happens but it always gets there. well it's because there's nothing left to take from the followers right you got all their money they're basically spending all their time doing labor for you so you gotta have sex with their wives. You just run out of shit for them to do that's holy, right? Sure. If any Scientologists are watching this, I know you guys are pretty nasty at going after critics, so I'm neutral. I'm totally neutral. Do not show up at my house. Cage, <laughs> leave me the fuck alone. I'm working on getting an ICBM, okay? Leave me the fuck alone. We feel we can learn from you. <laughs> Especially when we get sued. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um other things that happened this week, and I, I want to actually touch on the super aggressive marketers and fun stuff. Cool story coming out of India. Yeah, this is awesome. So there's that old saying that reality is stranger than fiction, and that's 
proven true repeatedly, but this one with the Stock Exchange of India, right? It is SEI, right? It's the private one. It's not the public. It's not the yeah. old one. The old it's one was a national one. exchange, yeah. right? It's, it's or whatever. The new one. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. You tell the story though. So there's this lady who was running it who it turns out had like a little bit more of a checkered past, I think. And what it's now, as, as part of like the filing for the IPO, I think, it has turned out that she has like a guru who is largely influencing all of her decision making and potentially to the level of she might actually just be a complete puppet for this sort of guru who's sitting in the background, which is truly bizarre for a company with a like multi-billion dollar a stock of, exchange for, for, mean, for a, yeah for a personnel stock exchange. personnel decisions based on yep. what the guru told her but she's never met the guru right it was oh, all yes, over that was email she never met the guru it's all over email but the authorities think that the guru was actually this dude working for her like her own sonny balwani mm-hmm. um was it who was sending her these emails so you got to get into this right like i I read this late at night when you forwarded it to me, so I'm not as versed on it as you know, honestly, I hope you are. I'm not that versed on it either. I just like I took like the high level points about like India stock exchange guru, and then I skimmed some of it, and I got to like more of the bottom. So the key so takeaway, fake guru, fake right. guru. Um, as somebody said to me, an investor who's done EM for a long time, he came out of a tiger cub. He has his own kind of tiger grand cub now. Said to me several years ago, he said. India makes China look like Switzerland. India fascinates me. Like I wanna like I never got the whole like well I, I guess initially like I was interested in China and I lived out there briefly and realized like ah fuck like they don't need guys like me around. And um, you know, India is really fascinating. I Why? Because you're like, smaller than they are? Guys, what the fuck? Like I'm about average height for an Asian woman. Um <laughs> So India really fascinates me because, like, the demographics are awesome. And, like, you know, you kind of look at China and you're like, hey, you know, like, there's a pretty logical conclusion. There's, like, a similar thing going on, super dynamic, like, really interesting, massive population. And it's just like, oh, man, the brain damage of getting to the bottom of it. Like, every time I read about a scandal in India, I'm like, yeah, I think these guys would have pulled the wool over my eyes. Like, I think there's, like, that level of sophistication on Really? Stuff. Yeah, I feel like it's, like, layers on layers on layers. That's China, just like, dude. Yeah, but China's, like, a little bit more organized. Like, you know, in the early days, it was pretty fucking obvious there was no factory. And then they were like, hey, there's the internet. Like, and we just have this different special internet that none of you can look at. India's like forever been like more opaque and then like you know the fund I used to work at there were you know and and there's a lot of parts of like the mechanism as well and like shorting in India which makes it very very difficult but I just look at it as thinking like it's a really fucking tough place to make money on the long side and it's like a tough place to make money on the short side. Well, when you don't believe anything's real in the stock market, it's hard to make money on the long side. You don't believe anything's real? Or maybe that would make it very easy to make money on the long side. Do you side. honestly not believe anything's real? I believe resource companies that have real resources are real. Dude, we sold one that like it was real. I, I mean, mean, I think. Was, I mean, there were holes in the ground. Well, yeah, but I mean, the dirt. You, you believe in dirt? The, the dirt ground. was very valuable. The dirt was very. The dirt valuable. was valuable. The people who ran it. Were the dirt so was valuable. worth so much more than the oh, Ford. Dude, I should have got my chin rather thick mug out. Jim Rutherford. Yeah, he yeah. was on the board of that. He was on the board. Oh, I just had mugs. I'll bring my mug in. I just got a, a mug made with his like jolly little neck. It's totally mean, but whatever. Okay, so so look, there there are a few things like left on the board here. So Japanese life expectancy fraud, China population oh, yeah, fraud. That was awesome. Um, Hindenburg with the Wall Street Journal article about their busting a fraud that ended in dude shooting at federal agents. Right. Because, of course, short sellers are the big fucking problem in the world. But we'll cover all those another time, or we won't. But since you brought up Jim Rutherford and we're talking about that mine, I think it's worth talking about the grenade you tried to bring onto a flight back to the U.S. from Canada that kind of goes back to the whole GT Gold thing. Yeah, so I... um... 
Yeah, someone that uh, an, an investor that you know we like and respect had originally pointed out to us that G2 Gold was a really interesting potential investment. And so when eventually the asset was sold, um, yeah, we stayed in touch and um, remained friendly. And he was like, hey, you know, we owned a lot of it, you owned a lot of it, and he had a nice gift to get me. And it was, uh, you know, the whole point of it was kind of about diplomacy. So it was a grenade-ish looking object with a quill. And you know, the whole point of it was kind of, you know, by the, you know, by the pen or by like force. And it was, so, and it was made by an like an actual artist. It was made yeah, out of metal. Yeah, or, it was yeah. made out of metal. It turns out that you know they really did think it looked like a grenade. So I was like, oh hey man, like you know I can take this. Like, yeah, my brother like flew last week. He had one, I think, in his hand luggage and took it from. Um, you know, uh, from uh, Toronto to Vancouver. So you actually did question whether you could bring it on the plane? Because I didn't hear that part before. Okay. You were told it's okay. Yeah. So we, you know, we get through, um, like I'm um, taking my uh, bag through and beeps and the lady asked me, she says, so um, you got like a watch box or like a object in there? I was like, yeah, a friend gave me like a paperweight sculpture type thing. So, um, she's like, cool. Can you open the bag? So, open the bag, she looks at it, she's like, well, you can't take this. I'm like, I can. And she's like, well, you know what it looks like. I'm like, yeah, I'm aware of what it looks like. But I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like the top two thirds of a grenade with a kind of like, sort of like melted, like dolly clocks type thing. Um, So you'd like put it on a ledge. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's like a paperweight slash sculpture thing. So um, she's like, well, I'll get my supervisor. So supervisor comes over. She's fucking ready to roll. Like, you can tell. It's like flexing the bulletproof vest. I'm like, okay, it's not going to go well. So she looks at me. She's like, can I see it? She looks at it. She looks at me. She's like, are you stupid? I'm like. She said stupid. Yeah, are you stupid? I'm like, I don't think so. So she's like, you know what this looks like? I'm like yeah, you have I'm, yet to prove that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> fair. Huh. Pretty well paid, stupid guy. But um, anyway, which makes me stupid. Okay. Yeah. So she she comes over and she's like, like you know, she, do you know what this looks like? Yeah, I'm aware of what it looks like. And I'm sensing like, yeah, this was maybe not the greatest idea on the planet. I'm like, look, sorry, didn't really think this through, but like, look, it's a piece of art. Like, you know, it it's not like I, you know, done something wrong here. I'm like, I just want to be really clear. Like, there's like, she's like. Yeah, just sit down, like, basically shut up. She calls over her two colleagues. Initially, they're, like, pretty aggressive and, like, ooh, so stupid. And then, like, one of them's like, all right, man, look, we we don't think you're a bad guy. Like, we we get that, like, you know, this is not a great Thank idea. God you didn't tell them what you do for a living, but yeah. Yeah, true. Then they've been, like, you're a bad guy. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. So she's like, what flight are you on? Like, I'm on the... You know, six fifty Delta. She's like, well, you won't be flying with them today or ever again. I'm like, why? She's like, well, you tried to bring a grenade on a plane. I'm like, uh, I tried to bring a sculpture of a grenade on a plane. I'm like, you know, if someone has like a little gun key ring, like, are they allowed to fly Delta again? And and she's like, I, I'm just like, anyway, why would I show? Well, if I were the pilot, I'm like, well, you're not a pilot. You're a security guard. Uh, <laughs> Whatever. I mean, like, once the guy told me I'm not a bad guy, I knew this wasn't going to be, like, terrible, terrible, So you, terrible. So you told the TSA agent she's a security guard. Yes, correct. Which that's, is a That's promotion. brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So, um, so we're kind of sitting around. They're, like, debating what's going on. And um, so, so then we get to the point where, like, the head, head, head guy, like, airport security, like, the big fucking dude, like, comes down. He, like, looks at me. He looks at me. I'm like, oh. I was like, look, man, sorry not super well thought out. I get it. I was like, but look, it's a Canadian artist. I call my friend. Like, now I'm like, you know, I gotta like really tell the story. I'm like, look, this is the artist. I'm like, it was bought in Toronto, like from a gallery. Like, it's signed on the bottom. I was like, I get it again. Not the smartest thing, but like, this would have been a pretty elaborate, you know, thing to do if I wanted to get something on a plane, right? He's like, yeah. So he's like, look, you kind of punishment for this. You gotta go and dispose of it. I'm like, all right. Well, what do you want to do? Like throw it in the trash outside? And he's like, well, no, you can't do that because someone will think there's a grenade in the trash. I'm like, well, do you want to take it back to the gallery? Like, literally, what do you want me to do with this thing? And he's like, yeah, that's that's such a good 
question. Uh, two minutes later, the bomb squad arrives. So like, bomb, the fucking bomb squad shows so up. The bomb squad nice. show up, and they're looking at it, and like, have you x-rayed it? And they're like, there might be something in the middle, and I'm shining again, and it's an artist, blah, blah, blah. So, and this gets me questioning the wisdom of the bomb squad. One of you like, pulls the handle off, okay? I am not <laughs> an expert, but I have got to assume that if you think that's potentially maybe even like a 2% chance of being a real grenade. Yeah, like, in, pull the like in the movies, they're looking for, oh, it's the yeah. red wire and the yellow wire. This dude just pulls just the handle don't off. don't yank the handle <laughs> off. So anyway. There's the low man on the totem pole, right? Not, not a married guy, you right. know, like no kids. Go ahead, pull the handle so off. So finally, after about an hour and a half of commotion, they kind of like walk me through. So I get to U.S. Customs, which is on the Canadian like side before you fly. So I've been in the past week, he's like, oh, Freddie, you're the grenade guy. I'm like, yes, I, I am the grenade guy. He's like, do you mind? He's like, I've been hearing about it all morning. I'm like, oh, great. He goes, do you mind if I uh, see it? So he looks at the picture I show him. He's like, oh, man. So I'm thinking he's saying like, oh, man, like how stupid. He's like, is, and he says to me, is that what they were really upset about? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's funny because now starting to learn the difference between Americans and Canadians, finally. Like, now I kind of get the calibration. Like, Canadians are that little bit more uptight. So he's super chill about the whole thing. He's like, anyway, man, don't worry. He's like, I'd have totally let you through with that thing. It's actually really cool. However, you do have to go step in this room for a minute to answer some questions because they called Homeland Security. So, like, you know, we, we've got to ask you some questions. So I sit in like one of those rooms like all the mirrors it's just like you know pretty movie-esque and the guy comes out he's super nice he asks me a few questions and he's like yeah look i kind of tick in the box move you on i think the problem with canadians there is they just haven't fought in any wars like canadian pussies nothing nothing exciting canadian pussies man. Nothing like exciting. why why aren't you going and sending people to pointless wars where the intelligence is made up if they had done that they would have understood that it's not a grenade. They just can't tell the difference. That's true. So yeah, so look, I, I guess, you know, my, my travel advisory warning for this week would be uh, thinking of coming back from Canada with a sculpture. UPS that shit. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, I think we should end it. Um, this is our second ever episode and hopefully many more to come. So thank you for tuning in. Smash and grab. Smash and grab. All the way.